Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host, Tom McKenna, and with me this week are Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And Matt Kenny. Hello. Behind the camera over there are Ben Strano and Jeff Rose. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey. It's cold out. Uh, let's get right to some questions, get right to the woodworking. Uh, this first one comes from Steven, and Steven says, I have a benchtop planer, but I don't think I'll be able to buy a decent jointer due to space. What is the best way to live without a jointer? Should I get a number seven jointer plane or some kind of jig from my planer? I'm mostly interested in building furniture for around the house and or small gifts for the family and friends. Plus, I have recently found the joy of hand tools for woodworking. The best place or the best way to live without a joiner is as a hermit in Patagonia. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. <laughs> I think both of those solutions um, are probably necessary. You know, some way to take an unflat board to support it in a way to run it through your planer to get yeah. one side flat. A number seven, I don't know if you have to have a number seven, but if you're looking for an excuse to buy one, go for it. At least a number five, I would say. Yeah. Same thing, if you sort of want to rough out one surface of a board flat enough to get some bearing surfaces to go through the planer, that's fine. Certainly, if you want to edge joint something flat, a longer plane is yeah. good. Um, the other thing you can do is, if you have a really wany board, you could either screw it down or somehow attach it to a wider, say, piece of plywood to run through your table saw, you know, just to get that mm -hmm. first edge straight. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of workarounds, and I think once you sort of figure them out and get into that routine, it's not going to feel like that much of a hardship. No, it's really not. If you, if, you know, table saw cut is pretty straight, even if you cut it, you know, I've ripped on the bandsaw, and, and that edge is, is pretty clean, and yeah. it doesn't take too long to, to get it nice and square. But I think the biggest issue is the face planing. Yeah. Um, and we've run plenty of uh, tips on how to make a little sled for your planer with, you know, either wedges or some other device to kind of level the board out. Right. And then you run it through, and then you can flip it. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing about... Uh, Depending on the size of your work, right? If you're making tables, like dining tables and things like that, you probably need a seven, a longer joiner, <clears> right? <throat> uh, but the thing is, to run something through a planer, the other face doesn't actually have to be perfectly flat. It should be straight, I would say, along its length. But uh, you could be a little, still be a little cupped out in the middle as long as there's continuous bearing surfaces yeah. on both edges. right. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, then you run it through until the top is flat, and then you flip it over and f finish flattening the other face. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess it depends on if you know. I know I could personally get by with a number five and without a joiner. You know, uh, but I would think if you're making longer stuff, you, you know, you would want to have a number seven just because the length uh, helps you straighten it. Yeah. Better. Yeah, I have a very narrow joint or a six-inch jointer, so I've, <clears throat> I've run into this problem a lot, and I use my planer a lot for just flattening stock, you know, unless I bring it into our handy-dandy workshop where we have a monster <laughs> jointer. But, um, yeah, if you're – and especially, I think another option, maybe if you're um, – for Stephen, if he's building stuff for friends and family, if he has to build a table, maybe he can – have the lumberyard, you know, flatten it for him or, you know, work out some arrangement like that. Yeah. 
They'll do it. I'd They'll keep an eye. Oh, I'd keep yeah. an eye on them while they were doing oh, yeah, it. Though. I would. <laughs> I would trust lumberyard to a hardwood dealer. I would trust. Like go through a, like a wide belt sander to sand like a glued up panel. I don't yeah. know if I trust any lumberyard to actually do any joining. A lot of times yeah. they they do this thing where it's a machine that sort of joins and planes at the same, same time. time. Right. I've seen some banana boards coming out the backside <laughs> of that thing. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Well, that's yeah. good to know. I take it back. I never have never actually used that uh, advice. Yeah, I don't know if I would uh, trust a lumberyard to some to joint something. Yeah, you know, I, I trust them to make two sides parallel to one another. Yes, right. <laughs> I'm not so sure. It would be straight and flat. Yeah. Well, then you just don't buy those boards. That's my next advice. Was if you don't have a joiner. When you go to buy lumber, be very picky. Sure. And get the flattest, uncupped, straightest boards you can yeah, to sure. minimize how much work you have to do. Make it as easy as you can on yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then well, you have these like wildly mismatched boards in your final piece. It's like, yeah, but man, those were the straightest boards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's get to question number two. This one comes from Damien. And Damien says, I have a fishtail chisel. That serves me pretty well for the all-important task of cleaning out the tight corners on my half-blind dovetails. Would a set of skew chisels offer an advantage over the fishtail style? And if so, I would likely buy a couple of quarter-inch bench chisels and grind in the skews. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't have a fishtail. I have chisel. a fishtail. And here's what I like about a fishtail over a skew chisel. A skew chisel has to be pretty close to the right angle, right? No, it's more. I, my skew it's is like pronounced. greater than whatever I need to do. So it's it, so it either has to be close to the right angle or more acute. Yeah. yeah so that you can get into the corner of a greater variety yeah. of slopes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Whereas a fishtail, because of the way it's shaped, the it doesn't. It's straight across the front, which makes it easier to sharpen, and uh, it can get into corners, the it's, tiniest it's little corners. Really acute on the right sides. Yeah. 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 Does yours have the really skinny sort of shank to it? Because that's the one thing I've seen about. Because I have like the pair of chisels ground to a skew, and I like beat on those things. And I don't think the fishtail chisels I've seen, I wouldn't hit them with a mallet. I would just use them by hand. Yeah, mine has a very thin neck, Uh you know, uh, and I would not hit it with something. But again, the thing, I don't know, I guess it depends on, when I'm doing a bunch of half-line dovetails right now, seven drawers worth on a, they're all small though, and I haven't needed to pound on anything. So the waste that I was able to remove before I started to fit the joints was um, it left almost nothing. So there's just a little bit of pushing that has to be done. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but the other advantage uh, about a fishtail chisel, which I know he mentions in the longer version of his question that his, most of his tail sockets are pretty wide, but uh, because of it has that really thin uh, thing, I can get the fishtail chisel into tail sockets that are not very wide at the narrow at the narrow side, whereas a skew chisel I wouldn't be able to. Yeah, I, mean, I think for really small work that's right. that's good. My skews are three eighth inch. You said you have a pair. Yeah. yeah. How big are yours? Mine are big. They're half inch. Yeah, I could see it with a half. I might be running into those yeah. problems. But I also have a I have an eighth inch chisel that I 
that I use for the same purposes when my skews don't reach in. But yeah. you know, most of the time I'm not really pounding on on the skew. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of just digging in the corner, trying to clear out. <laughs> right, your stuff. skews are just like. Buck Brothers, Buck Brother, five bucks a piece. Because I didn't want to buy an expensive chisel and then and like grind, grind it. <laughs> and you could like back when I got them, I think you could get a pair of skew chisels for like eighty dollars. Is like yeah, yeah, no. no. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I work on larger scale pieces. Like if I'm doing uh, half blind dovetails for you know like a regular size drawer front um, in white oak or, or whatever, I tend to remove most of the waste with a a router with a straight bit in a fence. So it's sort of, I mount the drawer front vertically in a jig and I can sort of route into it. And just, it leaves pretty rounded corners at the insides. Mm -hmm. And to me, if I did that by hand, it would sort of take a while. So I like to be able to have a skew chisel that I can really beat on to really establish that Mm -hmm. inside corner. Because if a half blind dovetail doesn't seat well, it's those inside corners. I don't Mm -hmm. like to goof around with those. The other thing that I've done in the past is uh, <clears throat> to get clean that corner up is to come in along the slope side of the socket yeah. with a chisel held perpendicular to, you know, so it's on its edge. Yeah. And that way you just come in along that uh, sloped angle and the bevel will cut right into the corner. And because it's angled back, it doesn't interfere with the, what do you call that other part, like the webbing that connects the two slope mm. sides. You still have to, to sever the end grain, though. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where you could use a one-eighth inch chisel. works like that. works pretty well there. But Also, um, I found like in cherry uh, is soft enough to where instead of using a skew chisel, because again, my, if my stock is mounted vertically and it's already right there, just a knife, uh, like my little marking knife or chip carving knife, I can sort of work into that, sever that ingrain into the corner, and then you can just pair everything else out with the chisel. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I find myself using my skew chisels less often, unless it's like, you know, tough wood, big old things. Yeah. I think I use mine pretty frequently, especially when dovetailing. But I've also used them for sometimes cleaning out the inside corner of a mortise. You know, I don't have a, a mortise, or I've got a, I use a drill press. And oh. Um, but, you know, that's pretty rare, I think. I don't Give a skew, Ben? Nope. No? Okay. I've, but <laughs> I've, I mean, I've only also ever done one set of half blinds. Um, and I think I used a knife to clean yeah. everything out. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, if I was doing a lot of them, after watching Bexford, I think I would get a fishtail. Thanks. All right. Well, let's move on to the first segment. It's time for our all-time favorite tool of all time for this week. You want to go first, Matt? Sure. Uh, I'll just carry on from the last question. (laughs) Fishtail. (laughs) My fishtail chisel, (laughs) which I've been cutting uh, a bunch of small drawers, uh, seven of them. And so there's two dovetail sockets on each side. So let's see, that's four, that's 28 half blind dovetail sockets. And uh, they're small. Uh, the drawers are an inch and three eighths tall. So um, the half blind dovetails, uh, half the fishtail chisel that I recently purchased from a friend uh, has been. Uh, 
saving grace. Kelly, talk to you into buying that? Oh, you'd have to talk me into it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's a good size? Uh, like if someone was looking to buy think, one or two, what would you recommend? I think the one that I have is a 3 eighths, which... The, the Lee Nielsen? Yeah, which works really well for the scale that, of stuff that I mm-hmm. build. Uh, they have a larger size, which I can't remember what it is. 5 eighths, I think. I think it's, yeah, 5 eighths, mm-hmm. which... Uh, I guess would be that would be a good size for standard cabinet uh, drawers, like a ch- chest of drawers. Uh, mm-hmm. It would be good for that. Um, so, I mean, I do like it in that it's uh, it enables me to get into t- really tight corners on small dovetails, uh, half line dovetails. It's, I don't really, I hate cutting half line dovetails. <laughs> it's just uh, a pain in the neck. But um, this has made it easier, a lot easier. Cool. So. I don't know if there's any other sort of Western style chisels you can buy as a fish tail, but I know you can get Japanese chisels in that profile as well. Yep, the Japanese have fish tail style chisels. Yeah, yeah. Cool. How about you, Mike? Um, I'm going to go with something I've said before, um, just because I was uh, in the city recently. Um, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which I love to hang out in. Uh, I used to love to hang out in the American wing with the furniture and the glass cases so you can go around and look behind and underneath everything. However, I've been spending more time in the Chinese little um, rock garden place where they have a structure reconstructed. It's very similar to like the Frank Lloyd Wright little house room. Um, and they have some like Ming Dynasty furniture and stuff in there. Anyway, uh, the tool... Uh, that I used specifically was a spiral bound sketchbook in a nice little thin black uh, marker pen for sketching, um, which you should have anyway. And I was kind of thinking about it. And I, I think that I can't remember a piece of furniture that I've made in the last 10 years that didn't start by drawing out about a million small sketches first. So, um, of everything, it's, it's probably the most important thing in regard to um, designing furniture that I have. So I think that's a great tool. Um, I like a eighty pound, sixty to eighty pound weight paper. I like the spiral bound book because you can open it all the way. I think six by nine inches is fine. If you start to get bigger than that, it's kind of big, and smaller than that, it looks kind of cute, but it's too small. Um, I like Pigra, my, uh, Pig Pigma. Micron pens, hmm. um, the O5 size, I like. It's like a, it's nice and fine. Um, it's more like a, it acts like a technical pen more than a felt pen. Um, Where do you get uh, these supplies? Every single art Staples supply store I go in, do, I Do you think buy they, one. they would sell them at Staples or is it more no, like Michael's Staples. kind of thing? Um, they might sell yeah, Micron pens, but you would have to buy a set of them. Mm-hmm. Somewhere like Staples, but my, yeah, Michaels. Yeah, definitely. I, I've never seen them at Staples, but uh, Michaels, yeah, any regular art supply yeah. store that you... You can on Amazon. Definitely. You can yeah. all over on like Dick Blick or Jerry's Artorama. Yeah. Those are two. Yeah. Best yeah. name of a company ever. Which one? Which Jerry's one? Artorama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great store. If you have one near you, go in there. You got yeah. everything. Make your head spin. I love Jerry's. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, I was going to talk about something that I talked about before my karate 
uh, rasps, but my uh, it, we, we're in the midst of this horrible cold spell where it's barely getting above five degrees, and so I'm uh, I'm throwing out my shop heater, <laughs> and I've talked about my basement shop being pretty temperate. Yeah, but it's this kind of weather where it gets just enough to be a little uncomfortable. So I I fire up the the heater about a half hour before I get into the shop, and then I can just go down there, and it's kind of a nice sixty sixty two degrees. Nice. That's about it. It's pretty boring. Heat is not boring. That's a good thing. <laughs> I was driving into work today, and my the temperature in the car was minus one. And I don't think I've ever seen a negative number in my car thermometer before. And I know every time like we complain about how cold that is, well, where I live, it's minus 30. It's like, well, why do you live there? <laughs> you know, you know. But yeah, this is the kind of cold, though, that, that just hurts when you're outside in it. Yeah, you can't yeah. stay out for it's very in, long. It's insane. But, and it's this kind of cold where um, I need that little boost of heat just to um, make it a little more comfortable to be downstairs. Yeah. But, yeah. My shop, which is in a garage uh, it, with an ins- one insulated garage door, it had been staying up around 60 until this recent yeah. cold snap. And now, yesterday, it was like 49 degrees in there. So I'm going to have to break out the heater and just mm. heat it up a little before I go in there. Yeah, my, my garage is uninsulated, so I'm glad I didn't set up a work area out there because it would be unusable at this in this kind of weather. It's crazy. My shop is insulated, and I have a propane-fired heater. So the temperature, whatever it normally is inside is what it is now, which is nice. Yeah. But I know my tank is probably going down quicker <laughs> than it normally does. And in the past, it was always, I would call up as on an as-needed basis, so I'd have to like go out and watch it. When I got down to a certain level, I'd have to call them and arrange mm-hmm. a, a scheduled delivery. And I they recently sort of said, well, why don't you just go on like automatic delivery? It's like, yeah, that's cool. Because now, I don't even care. It's mm-hmm. like... Yeah, you guys have your little until the bill comes. The bill comes. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. That's like yeah. down the road, and I'll like <laughs> squat then. But now yeah. it's just like you know, it's like hey, their job they keep track of what do they call it? The heat index, where where based on the temperature, they know how much heating oil or propane people are using, right. um, and they'll just sort of arrange dates. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't care at this at the moment. No. So well if I were building a dream shop in the northeast, I would certainly I think look at the radiant floor option. Yeah. I was recently at um a shop where the 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 author has radiant floor and it's like a dream. It's it's so comfortable and there's no no noise. It's just really kinda nice. But anyway, you gotta start that from scratch. Well, let's move on to questions. It's uh, question number three comes from Anthony. And Anthony says, I'm currently making bar stools that will have a curved inside edge on the legs and want to create a full bullnose on that edge. The material is three-quarter inches thick, and I want to use my three-eighth inch bearing-guided router bit. Clearly, the first pass is no problem. However, the second has no edge to run on. Honestly, I was having a hard time figuring out what he was. I knew exactly what he was talking about, and I have a yeah. solution. <laughs> There's a couple. Tom, of solutions, you've, you've yeah. obviously never ignored this problem and just <laughs> gone right on with that three inch and gone. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. What do you want, Matt? 
Uh, so this question made me think about how I have cut grooves for drawer bottoms in the back of curved drawer fronts because that's the same kind of thing. It's a convex face, and you need to cut into it. And uh, the problem he's having is, is after he makes the first route to bullnose one side of it, the bearing surface for the bearing is gone. Yeah. yeah. So what he needs is a fence. And it the fence, you know, uh, for a for a con I'm sorry, for a convex surface would be easy. But for a concave surface, right, mm-hmm. which is what he's talking about, is a little trickier. So and that made me think of these routing the you know the concave side of a drawer front. Um, so what I came up with is this a fence on my router table that uh, we have some pictures of here that has a very tight radius, mm-hmm. and then it fits down over the bit, whatever bit. Here I'm using this as a slot cutting bit because I was making drawer grooves, drawer bottom grooves. But you could also just notch the front of that fence for your uh, bullnose bit. And then you just, like any other fence, you would just line up the outside face of the fence with your bearing, and then you're able to route along that that uh, apex there and just route the bullnose. He'd be able to route the bullnose. So it's just a, it's a fence that has a very, has a, a radius to it that's much tighter than the inside radius of your stool legs. And that'll allow you to route both sides of the uh, bullnose. That's cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah. The other option is just buy a bullnose bit. So it's like the full U shape with yeah. a bearing. And just treat it like your template routing and just get, you know, tack on something or tack your leg down to a template with the same curve. Let the bearing ride against the template as you route that surface. Then you don't need to have any bearing surface intact. Do those bullnose bits, though, have bearings on them? I thought they're usually just flat across the top with no bearing. Oh, no, you get a bearing. <laughs> it's cute. Voila. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, here's the thing. You might want to try this or think about this. They are available. Um, the bullnose profile, for me, when I hear bullnose, it's like it's a true full radius curve. So it's a three-quarter diameter curve on a three-quarter inch thick piece of wood. So you have a curve, and there's a really soft intersection between the flat of the board and then that rounded edge. Mm-hmm. And I think it gives you... Visually, it's a it's a really soft transition, so it gives you kind of a let's say it's sort of a, a non crisp look to your work. Um, whenever I do any sort of rounded edge profile, and I do it quite a bit, either symmetrical um, or asymmetric, um, I like to have sort of a hard intersection between the curve and the flat, and it creates a really nice shadow line. So it gives you a crisp look. Uh, to a piece, even though you have a rounded edge. So what I would normally do if I had a a three-quarter inch thick piece, I wouldn't use a three-eighth inch uh, radius bit um, or bullnose. I would go oversized with the radius so that where the curve meets the flat, you have sort of a hard edge there. Um, Try it and see how that looks. I have a feeling you might 
like that look a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. Go oversize or undersize with it? Oversize. Oversize. So like have like a it, so like have a half inch radius bit to do a three quarter inch thick piece. So you would have a flat on one side. No. So, so you basically it's um, the, the radius of the curve is larger than the thickness of the stock. So you have a curve that sort of meets at a point. It's like larger than, it's not like a a full true half round. So not going a half half inch deep. So a larger radius, shallower. Yeah, right. I like that. Refer to that as an eris curve. Eris meaning where the the curve section meets the flat. Um, And try to keep that like really crisp and sharp. And I think you might like that. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to question number four. We're just blowing through these. This one comes from Jim. And Jim says, I'm building a chest lid from Cortisorn Sapili. The outer nine inches of the lid are a darker shade than the rest. Are there any methods to even out the color of the panel? I saw the difference when gluing it up, but I thought that after planing and sanding, they would even out. Sapili. So that's sort of... Maybe answers my initial question, like, is this a wide board that just has a darker streak in it, or are you gluing up boards of different colors? And it sounded like it might have been a glue-up of different color boards. It's glued up. He sent pictures in. It's glued up from multiple boards. Okay. Yeah. I saw one picture, and I saw it really, it looked like a streak of sapwood, but I don't think that's what he was referring to. No, it was, and when he had a couple of different photos, I don't know, Ben, just going through. Uh but yeah, on one side the a board or two were noticeably different, yeah. darker. Not even just darker; they were like a different color. Oh. Well, I think uh, yeah. keep the sapwood because that's going to draw your eye more than the slightly mismatched colors on the other side. But assuming you want to, that is not going to either stay or that's going to get colored. Um, I don't know. I I hate that. That situation, especially if it's not what you intend, but it sort of forces you to dies or something. Um, I mean, one way is just, hey, it's two different boards. It just is, and they're glued up. And the reality is you have a panel made from two different boards that are glued up. So what are we, what are you trying to hide there? It's okay. I think it's, in one way, it's just okay. How does Sapili age? Well, so what I would suggest is... uh, Yeah, let it oxidize for a while. And see how it looks. It'll get darker. Uh, Sapili will. Because Sapili is is related to mahogany. Yeah, so it'll get darker and redder over time. It'll get darker and redder. And it might even out enough. You could also try things like just, because, you know, shellac's not that hard to clean up afterwards. So put a coat of shellac on it and see what happens. Do they even out? Does Does it get noticeably darker under shellac? Um, you could even just try it with mineral spirits. Although mineral spirits were almost certainly just it, it'll dark. Well, I don't know. Put mineral spirits on it and see how even it is after you darken all of it. Yeah, you know, and just see what happens with it naturally. Because um, Sapili does get darker with age, and um, there's a chance that that would just even out on its own. But it's not just that it's darker; it is different colors. Yeah, uh, there's streaks in there. Yeah, there's streaks, and there's not. I don't think any of that is sapwood, though. Um, but because usually Sapili doesn't have sapwood because the trees are so big and wide that they can cut them up without sap. But I think, but um, 
Yeah, so it's kind of hard to guess what that's going to do. I'd be inclined to follow what Mike says and just kind of let it be because I'd hate to get into a situation where I'm starting to try to fix the colors or match colors and then if you make a mistake and overdo it or under, you know i think you could almost make the problem worse if yeah. you, you end up chasing your tail um one way that's really forgiving uh, so if i if i do want to resort to uh, let's say a dye i want to all pick something which is pretty subtle and not really adding a lot of color rather than just trying to dye one section leave the other bare i would dye the entire surface but come back and hit that lighter surface again just to sort of get you in the ballpark the other thing to do is go with a glaze which is basically it's a stain on top of a sealed surface so you could seal the whole thing with a coat of shellac and then go back in with an oil-based stain that you can kind of wipe on and then basically you can wipe that all the way to dry Mm -hmm. if you want to so you can sort of leave it a little heavier on the lighter wood, but then just sort of lighten up on the darker wood. And because, to Matt's point, if they're sort of two different tones, two different colors, if you go over with a stain that's uniform across the top, it's not that you're going to match those colors exactly, but because you know you basically have an even colored tint over those two tones, it's going to unify it. And I think that the key is... Once you start looking at this and you, you're paying attention as you're working on it, you're going to keep looking and keep looking and you're going to try to make it perfect and you'll never make it perfect. So just do something and then just kind of say, okay, I addressed it. Whatever it is, is going to be what it is. And then just get on with it. And I have a feeling once the piece is done, there's going to be so many other things that the eye is attracted to other than that one glue joint mm-hmm. that is probably going to be fine. And don't tell anybody about it. And they won't notice it either. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's right. A, another issue with trying to correct this with coloring is that it, the color changes along a yeah. perfectly straight glue line. Yes. It is a hard <laughs> difference, and I just don't. I mean, I know I could. Maybe a professional finisher could go along that hard glue line and change the color on one side, but not yeah. the other, and have it look natural. Yeah. I think it's more if you can create some sort of a less hard transition between the two, that would definitely help. Mm-hmm. Hi, Ben. Hi. All right, it's time for segment number two, Smooth Move. Uh, how about you, Mike? You want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, I would just say in general, okay, we all have cell phones at this point. Let's just say everyone does. And everyone, even if it's like an old-style cell phone, you have a camera on it. So my smooth move is I tend to try to document my builds as I go along. And sometimes I fall in the habit if I have a nice uh, digital camera and like, well, if the lighting isn't right or if there's no natural light and I have to use fluorescent, I don't want to take a picture of that because that's going to be a bad picture. It's like now the the point is for the most part, um, it's just to document my processes, especially if it's like an interesting solution to a challenge I, I don't normally face. And during the process, it's like, oh, I'll remember what I did because this is such a smart solution and cool way to do it. And then it's just like a year later and I'm faced with the same thing. It's like, yeah, no, I have no idea how I did that. Um, So the smooth move is just not stopping to take a really quick picture, even if it's down and dirty with a phone to document what you're up to, what processes, the the jig you used or the solution you came up with. I think it's a a really important thing for all of us to be doing. And um, when I fail to do that, it always seems to come back and bite me at Mm -hmm. some point. So 
um, just to be more diligent about that. And especially, you know, if it's your phone, it's literally like what, five seconds to like yeah. pop that up and hit that and then just keep on moving. So there you go. Boom. I've got two related ones with two interesting solutions. I your think. kids. I hope not. No, not my kids. Um, uh, so I've been making this, uh, box for uh, a client and it's three boxes stacked on top of each other and each one of them has drawers in it right so initially the initial design was that the bottom just had one drawer and I know I've spoken about this before on the podcast that when you start to make things that are about a quarter inch thick or maybe five sixteenths like a box and you want to put a drawer in it and just one drawer they start to it starts to even after you, you glue it up everything's flat and perfect they will begin to pinch inwards in yes. the middle yeah so you end up with this uh, drawer pocket that is curved down on the top and curved up on the bottom and it's kind of impossible yes so that happened with this and I sort of, I, I know that that happens and I shouldn't have I should have changed the design but it was a box that she had purchased. A, a copy of a box that she had already purchased. And the previous one was fine because it was made with much more stable wood. Mm-hmm. This stuff just was, it was, it really cupped or sagged really badly. So I kind of just didn't do anything, didn't do anything, didn't move on with the drawer, didn't move on with the drawers. And then so one day uh, I just said, uh, well, I don't know <laughs> if I can say what I said, <laughs> but I said, you know, blanket. And all I needed was the two sides because those had a grain match going up the sides of all three boxes and over the top. So the top and the bottom of this lower box didn't matter to me. So I just got went to the bandsaw and cut them off, cut through both of them at the same time. And that left me my sides, took a hand plane and planed away the remaining parts of the old miter joint to right. get back to the original side. And then I just made new, a new top and a bottom. And this time I cut a uh, dado for a divider in the center. So um, to make it two drawers, cause that divider yeah. will keep everything flat. Yeah. Right. So one, so that was my smooth move. And the solution is, and this is broadly something I've gotten more and more willing to do is just to say, you know, F it. And chuck it or yeah. or cut it open yes. or whatever yeah. and just go back and start over again. Yeah, because then you start to try to fit a drawer to that little wonky box. Yeah, it's not going to work. I hate that when it's like fits perfectly and then it gets about a third of the way in and it's that set. It doesn't sticks. go any It's yeah. like, it ain't the drawer. There's that. There's something yeah. You have to get a spoke shave out to fit your forefront. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, so then... I got, you know, I, I was back to the point where it's time to cut dovetails. And so there's seven drawers to cut dovetails for. And um, I'm cutting all of these things. And normally what I do is I, I cut my groove for the drawer bottom before I do anything else. But I didn't do that this time. This time I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I know people do it the other way where they cut their dovetails and then they go back and cut the groove. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try that. And... Well, I ended up uh, miscutting some of the dovetails at the back of a drawer. And I'm not going to go into the detail how, but I ended up cutting the what should have been at the bottom edge of the drawer at the top edge of the drawer. Right. And so it was all screwed up. 
Yeah, but fortunately, the solution, which is something I do pretty much all the time now, is when I was making drawer sides, I made uh, like two or three or four extra drawer sides. Mm. So all I had to do was just chuck it and just cut the tails again because it was already everything was the right length, it was the right height, it was the right thick, you know, thickness, everything. So I didn't have to go back completely and start over again. I had a few extra parts. Which are good not only for something like that, but also if you're doing setups, you know, for joinery or something, it allows you to test it on something that isn't the final piece. Cool. Uh, before you start to do it, just cut off the dovetails on the just back corner, and you have a shorter drawer. <clears throat> no, if you have seven drawers and one of them is like a half inch shorter or whatever, then the rest stop at the weird. back there. As long as it stops in the same place. Yeah, Hidden compartment. Not going to do it. And then Sorry. just pull it out and say, I want you to notice that this drawer is just a little shorter. This is the custom one. This is, because there <laughs> this needs is, to be an imperfection in everything I make. Um, that's really important, but I don't want it to show. But I made this intentionally shorter. Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I had already cut my half-line dovetails at the front, that drawer's getting shorter. But, yeah, no, I had not, because I was only still cutting the tails. Yeah, I was only cutting the tails at that point. So, um, But also, here's the thing, though. I mean, the way I cut my tails, I was able to go back and recut the tails, and they were exactly the same as all the other tails. So it wasn't, you know, with a hand-cut dovetail, yeah, that would be a problem. But... You know the way you do it at the and the With way the I do saw. it. Yeah, I did it at the bandsaw, but oh, it's okay. e you know easily able to reset the bandsaw for all of those cuts and have it turn out exactly the same. Right. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, mine is uh, an almost smooth move based on a lesson I learned years ago. But I was the only shop time I've had in the past few weeks um, was to take a one inch chisel. I have a little uh, a butt chisel, a one inch butt chisel that I wanted to resharpen and. Uh, get honed up, and um, I'd gotten it all through all the sharpening grits, and I was just holding it, and I checking it out, and I lost its grip, and it kind of fell to the floor. And years ago, I was doing the same thing with a, um, a plane blade, and I dropped it, and I went to catch it, because the reflex was catch stupid thing and i stabbed myself so my almost smooth move was you know i i actually had the the uh, memory or muscle memory not to try to catch the yeah. chisel and uh unfortunately i had to regrind the whole thing it, it chipped the whole corner out and kind of made me angry but i was intact so don't uh, try to catch your things. Yeah. So I have a related story. I learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, when I was in college, I guess, I'd gone back home and went to my first job ever was at a restaurant that made really good pizzas and they had a grill for like burgers and chicken sandwiches. And I was the pizza cook. End of the night comes and I got to cover up all the stuff in the prep table and the cool prep cooler that is where, you know, so you can pull pepperoni or whatever out and make the pizza. All that gets covered with like a two foot wide piece of saran wrap. And it's in a giant industrial saran wrap dispenser. Oh my God. Right? So it has one of those long serrated oh, yeah. knives mm -hmm. on it. So I set it down. I set that whole big cardboard box of saran wrap with a giant serrated knife on it down onto the prep counter at the pizza station and it starts to slide off 
and I put my hand out instinctively to grab it and stop it. And that knife just, I don't know how much of it, but a whole long section of it just ran all the way through one of my fingers. And fortunately, it was only one finger, but in fortunate, it was only two stitches. Yeah. So it wasn't that bad. But it's a really ragged oh, cut. It's a nasty cut. It was not pleasant. No, that's And the awful. worst part about it all, so this is why you definitely don't. So I go there to the emergency room to get sewn up, right? And so they have to do anesthesia. So, well, it turns out when they're going to numb your finger, what they do is they put that needle in between your other, (laughs) in between your fingers on either side. Oh, it feels great. And it felt like the needle went all the way up to my elbow. (laughs) That's how painful it was. So that's why you don't reach out to grab sharp things. Yeah. You do not want to have that experience. (laughs) <laughs> I I've never I don't think I ever reach out with my hand, but I'm the instinctive foot. stick my foot out. Me too. Uh, yeah. That's from playing too much hacky sack. And, and I just want to break the fall. <laughs> you know, just just decrease the down. momentum a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I when I did it the first time with the plane blade, I remember it hit me, and I knew right away. Yeah. I just clutched my hand, and I was like, "Oh, that's really bad. That's really yeah. bad." And I didn't want to look. I just went upstairs and had to wash it. I didn't, I didn't suck it up and go to the hospital. I probably could have used a couple stitches for that one, but super yeah. glue. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. this was you know back in the forties. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have super glue. <laughs> All right, early nineties. Let's get back to some fun questions. This one, um, who's this from, Ben? The uh, dovetail swelling. Anyway, this is from anonymous. Oh, it. <laughs> Jim Bob. Jim Bob. We'll say Bart. We'll say Bart. Okay, Bart says recently, I had my dovetail swell after planting them flush and applying shellac. Have you ever had this happen? And if so, what did you do about it? I've never had that happen. Yes, and that is why all my dovetails are proud. <laughs> That's. Don't fight it because it's going to get there, whether it's the first coat of shellac or after your first heating season. Your dovetails are never going to stay even. Oh, yeah, you're right. That, it has happened to me, but it was too late to fix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this particular case, so, okay, let's, let's say that's not your solution. Shellac really should not, if anything, all you have to do is lightly sand it. It shouldn't yeah. swell them so much that you have to go back at them with a hand plane or something. I yeah, it probably feels rougher than it actually is. The picture he sent does not look like shellac, so yeah. Well, okay, so and also the problem there is that it's white pine or it's just pine, That's which like, is going to oh. swell more than doesn't look like oak, does it? I couldn't tell. At first, I thought it's like it was white pine with, oak, a, with a stain. Yeah, it looks like maybe it's pine, pine with mission oak <laughs> stain. <laughs> um. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, so if that's a water-based... <laughs> that's a wood thing. If that's a water-based stain, it's definitely going to swell the grain. Oh, yeah. And uh, it'll definitely swell the ingrain more. Yeah, I guess, you know, if you want to try to pre-raise the grain by wetting everything first and sanding it, mm-hmm. especially if you're applying a stain on top of something and you can't cut through the stain once you're done. Um, yeah. So I'd say pre-raise the grain and sand it, and then if you stain it and that happens... Um, I'm not sure I would have done what was done in the photo, which was really sand through one corner. Yeah. That's yeah. rough. Um, I think those were just practice dovetails, though, weren't they? They looked like it, yeah. Yeah, but, okay. um, yeah, you, you wouldn't want to do that regardless. Yeah. And stop staining stuff. 
<laughs> there's the uh, there's the podcast title. Yeah. Stop staining stuff. Then yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, before we wrap this thing up. I just want to let folks know about our latest sweepstakes. If you're looking to start out the new year with some new machines, go to findwoodworking.com slash sweeps to enter to win a full workshop from Grizzly Industrial. It's like, I think, five grand worth of uh, shop machines. That's pretty sweet. Wow. Bandsaw, jointer, planer, dust collector. I mean, and all the big guys. So there's the answer to that guy's question earlier is <laughs> <laughs> just win a sweepstakes. I mean, how hard is it? Come on. Boom. All right, that's it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions and comments, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. <laughs>